Welcome to a very special and unique episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Tonight we are presenting a brand new episode of the Sidecast and give you a very rare interview with retired NYPD homicide detective turned consultant, advisor, actor, producer, and writer Randy Jurgensen. In presenting part one of our interview with this legend, we start with the backstory of his life as a Korean War veteran who received a Purple Heart from his combat on Porkchop Hill, who then lays out for the audience what it was like to become an NYPD police officer in the late 1950s and be a cop during the worst era the city of New York has ever seen, a time that has been documented in scores of films, books, and TV shows. And the dramatization of one of these famous cases is even how Detective Jurgensen was able to segue into a career in Hollywood. But to hear the story on how he was able to be a part of some of the most influential films in history, he starts by telling us the state of New York City and how bad it really was in the late 1960s and 70s, to a point where officials even thought they could possibly lose control of the city to organize groups like the Weather Underground or the Black Liberation Army, which was known as the BLA. This is truly a case where fact is stranger and possibly even more interesting than fiction. So to understand the life that Detective Randy Jurgensen had and what brought him to Hollywood, we present here in part one this very exciting edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We hope you enjoy. Randy, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Uh, you've had an illustrious career that spanned, uh, geez, four or five decades. You've, you've been a, you were in Korea. You, be, you were a police officer for, for over three decades, and then you segued when you think you're, you're, you know, you'd retire. You went right into the film industry, and you've had a lucrative film career in some really, really, really big movies and some uh, low-budget but very quintessential and cult classic movies as well. So uh, it's quite an accomplishment. Um, it all, uh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> I think that... Uh, an awful lot of uh, uh, luck and being in the right place, you know, <laughs> at the right time, uh, that didn't hurt either. Being a bit of a, a wise guy, uh, uh, kid, a, a, along with several others uh, from my neighborhood, you know, forged uh, my uh, birth certificate and I uh, joined the uh, I joined the army at uh, 16, and um, <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the proudest, even to this day, uh, uh, about my service was that I became a uh, a paratrooper, and uh, I believe me. Uh, my pride in, 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 in doing that, you know, airborne, I mean, I really joined a band of brothers. And you were in Porkchop Hill as well. Uh, yes, I, I, uh, I, was, uh, I, was sent to, I was sent to Korea, and um, I spent, um, I spent uh, nine months uh, in Korea, in and out of, uh, in and out of uh, uh, combat uh, situations, and um, I, uh, I wound up uh, uh, on a hill uh, in Korea called uh, Porkchop. Of course, at the time, <clears throat> I was 18 years of age, and uh, I knew nothing. Uh, I knew nothing. It was just uh, one more hill that we were trying to take and hold. Of course, it, it, it turns out to be 
if not famous, infamous for, for the toll that it took to try and take that hill. I, uh, I got hurt and uh, eventually uh, I, was, uh, I was sent home. But your family thought you were maybe dead or missing for 12 hours or so. <clears throat> exactly. The, uh, uh, the telegram that was, uh, uh, was uh, sent home was uh, misread by my aunt. And uh, by the time uh, my dad got the news, it was that I had been uh, killed. Yeah. It took uh, 12 hours or so to get that to, to get that to get that straightened out. Of course, I knew nothing of that until I came home. Yeah. Um, also, also when I uh, came home, uh, I like many others just totally forgot about that. And you, I, I forgot about, I forgot about my service. You know, I forgot about it because, from the get-go, that was never called a war. And it, it's earned the title of the Forgotten War. Yeah. Uh, it was called a police action. A number of things, uh, and yet, and yet, the price that was paid for those three years, uh, you know, by American soldiers, is is really unbelievable. And you you got the Purple Heart in well, I never uh, officially got I it. never officially got any of my medals. I, I I never got any of my medals through no fault, through no fault of the army, and I never went looking for them. I totally forgot it. To continue with the military, <clears throat> and that was 1953. In 1967, continuing with the military. I received a letter from the, um, I guess it was the Secretary of Defense, Secretary, uh, I have it. They were asking me to come back into the service. I've not to, told too many people about this either. And I, uh, I accepted and I went out to uh, Fort Taunton. And I took a medical, and I took a series of uh, tests, and uh, I became what they called like a weekend warrior, uh, you know. And of course, they wrote a letter to the police commissioner, and I was excused duty from '67 to 1968. It lasted, it lasted 16 or 17 months. Uh, I went away uh, a week at a time. Uh, I went back on jump status, and I was a Green Beret. And my expertise were, was in demolition. Now, were, you, were they, do you think they were planning to have you maybe go to Vietnam, or this was more of a no, domestic? No, I, I, I knew I was not, I knew I was not going to go to Vietnam. There's no guarantee. But what my, what my expertise what was in was in demolition yeah and what the scary part about it was the demolition training that i was receiving and teaching was regarding if we lost the city now this is a good segue point before we we change the subject your helmet is uh on display at west point the actual helmet you wore because i think you you yes it on was, pork chapel yeah it was yeah. in it in a, shrapnel. yeah shrapnel yes and it's there yes um but- so, as you were saying now, this... This, this here, uh, this here course, uh, you know, was how to uh, uh, 
you know, while I was in uh, while I was in Korea as a, a demolition expert, uh, I laid minefields. Well, two anyway, uh, booby traps, um, all kinds of uh, you know, <clears throat> Constantina barbed wire, uh, protecting you know bunkers and and <clears throat> again minefields uh, along the lines like Setting that. That's what I was stuff, doing. Yeah. Now, I was being taught how to you know, cripple an electrical system, let's say in the city of New York, yeah. uh, to knock out a bridge, you know, from the abutments. And that's what I was now being taught. Because the feeling was, by 1967, the feeling was that there was a possibility we could lose a city. That's amazing to think that in the context of today. Okay, I may be going a little too far with that, but that was my feeling. And where did I get this feeling? Uh, I'll get this feeling going back now into my police work. So I became a police officer at uh, 21. Um, And how I became a police officer was when I came home from uh, when I came home from Korea, uh, there really was no, there were there were no jobs. There yeah. really were no jobs, and at this point, at this point, um, I had continued what I was doing at uh, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. I was uh, uh, f- f- for the novice that will listen to this. I was uh, taking numbers. I was collecting numbers. Uh, just like you have lotto today where you can play three numbers you can play four numbers i was doing that when there was no lotto you're a numbers runner i was a numbers runner it was illegal and i was also picking up the monies which i would put in my sock and i would bring i would bring the monies to what they called the bank yeah the uh, 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 collecting numbers strictly illegal but done throughout the whole city of New York and virtually in, I will call, poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, for instance, the, the numbers was the big, one of the biggest things done in Harlem. The and that's numbers, where you were born and raised, in Harlem. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the biggest things done in my neighborhood, which was a poor, white, Italian, Irish neighborhood. I was born on 125th Street on the west side yeah. um, <clears throat> at home. And so I was raised with people uh, taking numbers. It is, uh, I, I now say this, uh, my father, uh, you know, my father was a, 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 a low level bookmaker. Yeah. My uncle was a high end, uh, a high end uh, bookmaker uh, in the neighborhood. Um, I worked for a man uh, in the neighborhood uh, called Clint. I, I wrote a book. I know this is a little out of context, but I paid homage to him, uh, the, the numbers man uh, in our neighborhood. Uh, he was known to uh, pick up the rent when one of our neighbors couldn't afford to pay their rent. Wow. Uh, he put us in the movies as 
I picked up the tab for putting us all in the movies. Oh, um, when you go see a, a movie or something on a weekend. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what the numbers man did in my neighborhood. In my neighborhood, I'm not going to use the word hero, but the numbers man was, you know. Like he, he was kind of, A yeah. good guy. Yeah. He was a good guy. So I was, I went back to collecting numbers. Um, my uncle was collecting, uh, you know, sports bets. And what I would do after he collected a certain amount of sports bets, I would go to the telephone um, at 14, at 15. I was now doing it at 21. You understand? Yeah. I would then go to the telephone and I would call those bets in to, you know, the center. In other words, if my uncle took too many bets that he was in over his head, you understand? This is what they would call lay it off. Yeah. They would lay lay these bets off. That's what I was doing. So you could have took a whole different route in life. Exactly. But instead, you, exactly. you put the uh, exactly. applications exactly. in everywhere you could. Exactly. And some of the guys that I grew up with and was hanging out with, uh, two of them, two of them uh, were now arrested and doing uh, time for uh, low-level stick-ups. They would stick up something in virtually another neighborhood, candy store, whatever, whatever they, they were arrested. Uh, one, of the, one of them that uh, I grew up with um, is seriously went the way and wound up uh, working for one of the families. He was uh, low-level, and if you want to use the word mafia, he was low-level mafia. He was, he was a very, very good friend of mine, and in fact, uh, would be uh, like an honorary uh, godfather to uh, one of my children. Okay. This is who I uh, grew up with. Yeah. So, I was playing stickball, uh, as as we uh, we always did. I played stickball, and uh, one of the people. Mike Rafferty came one day while we were playing stickball, the whole group of us, and said, I have applications here for the post office. I have applications for working for the parks department, and I have applications for the police department. I had never one single thought about working for any one of those firemen, police officers, none whatsoever. I had nothing. However, uh, and I was working for United Fruit, unloading bananas. I was working on the piers. However, uh, Dion, when I came home and something I... From Korea. From Korea, I now share, uh, and I've gone to the VA, uh, I've gone to the VA over it, And believe me, I think maybe publicly I'm now sharing this uh, with you. I couldn't sleep. Yeah. I could not sleep when I came home. Um, I was very, very, one more time, very concerned that I came home in December and my brother was going to be 18 in April and my brother was definitely going. 
my parents couldn't stop him. At 18, he was definitely going. And I was worried sick over that. Yeah. I now heard all the stories of when I got hurt over there, what went on in my house with my mother and my father. I don't know how many gray hairs I put on them for being over there. I, and, and now I knew my brother was going to go. So I couldn't sleep. And I would sleep. I would sleep, Dion. I would sleep uh, in my parents' house with a bayonet. And I would sleep sitting up. Wow. I would sleep sitting up. And my brother was in the same room. And he knew it. And one night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I got up. I went across the street to the park. No drink, no nothing. And I said, come and get me. Come and get me. Come and total get me. Well, of course, they called the police. They called an ambulance. And I was, I don't find this difficult talking about it now. And they called an ambulance and I was taken away in a straitjacket. And my, the cop, Andy, who worked the neighborhood, the, beat, yeah. the neighborhood right there, he came with me. And I went to Nicobaca Hospital. And it was two o'clock in the morning. And of course he knew me. And he said to me, Look, Randy, he said, once this becomes official, you're never going to be able to work. You're, n- you're never really going to get a job. You're not going to be able to do this. You're 20 years old, 21 years of age. Let, 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 let's get out of here. Let's just get out of here before it becomes an official record. We were on the ground floor. He untied my straitjacket and helped me out the window. It wasn't very, very high helped me out the window, and I left, I left the hospital. And there was never a record made of, never of the Never a incident. record was made of this, nothing whatsoever. And, of course, I just told you about the applications. Yeah. And, of course, the police department called. Before you know it, I was a police officer. So, so I became a police officer. Now, Dion, to try and understand uh, what a police officer was back then, I think I can do this in a few sentences. I became a police officer in the in the in the in the late fifties, and being a police officer in the late fifties meant wearing the uniform correct, having a haircut. Making sure uh, when the summer came, I changed to a summer uniform. Um, We were not called police officers. We were called patrolmen. Um, Making sure that, uh, you know, the right amount of summonses, there was never a quarter, but uh, were issued out. Um, This was the 50s. This was Father Knows Best. You know what? Father knows best. Was there drugs? Yes, there was. Where were the drugs? Let's put it this way. They were not in white America. Yeah. So that's not a racist statement. They were not in white America. Were there drugs in white America? Yes, there were. Was there really truly like a huge epidemic of it? I'm going to say no. 
And where would you find this in, in white, white America? Well, you wouldn't find it using New York City. You wouldn't find it on Park Avenue. Using the suburbs, you wouldn't find it in Scarsdale. Mm. You understand? Yeah. So that's what it was like being a police officer in the 50s. Father knows best. I mean, you had down south at this time, the beginnings of voter registration. You had dogs attacking uh, human beings, people. Like a lot you, of the civil you rest. had the civil rights. You had hoses turned on these people. And there was a show that portrayed uh, down south and it was uh, with Ronnie and and him and it started out with uh, the whistle and there they were going with the hose and it was uh, Bonnie Bonnie Pfeiffer was in the movie uh, Andy uh, Griffin's show Andy Griffin's show yeah. I mean that was the depiction of the South the on television yeah. and that's what we saw yeah. and that's what we knew you know yeah and I am now a police officer. I have no vest. I have no helmet. I have no radio. Uh, I would work in a radio car. The radio car, ha, ha, ha. Not only didn't it have no air conditioning, it didn't have heaters. Wow. Some of them didn't have heaters. We had to use the, the long coat. <clears throat> the only communication we had was the radio in the radio car. And that's why a radio car is called a radio car, because it was the only place we had a radio. And it's mind-boggling today where you, you, know, you think about if you were to leave the car to go uh, for any kind of uh, disturbance or whatever, you're, you're out of communications from, from Central Command and, how, and backup. And how did I commute if there was trouble? Well, we were taught to bang our nightstick on the sidewalk if we needed help or to run to where they had what they call call, yeah, the boxes, call boxes on the wall which are still there like the, <clears throat> for firemen and stuff you see those police so firemen. you would you'd have to run and say hello boy am i a shitload of trouble <laughs> you know send help <laughs> i mean it was not ridiculous it was the job yeah and we did it now suddenly for me a big marking change for me I don't know about anybody else but for me in 1959 the airplane went down and my music died it did with the big Bapa Richie Valens yeah. that was the day the music died and if you just listen to six minutes of American Pie uh, that song it will tell you that really marked me and we went into the 60s. We went into the 60s, as far as I was concerned, with absolutely no kind of music. It was, it was, uh, it would, uh, whatchamacallit, who's in jail today, uh, his music was the wall of sound. Oh, Sonny Phil Spector. Chair, yeah, Phil yeah. Spector, they were all there. Yeah. And nothing really radical would happen to the music world, as far as I was concerned, until the Beatles got here. Yeah. And that would be 1964. Now, I'm a cop throughout the 60s. And in the 60s, Dion, I am, I am definitely, definitely greeted with, you know, the civil rights movement. I mean, it, it was all like brand new to me. It was all brand new to me. 
all the demonstrations that were riots. We would lose the President of the United States. I was actually out buying drugs when President Kennedy was shot. By 1963, hello, white America was as deep in, involved into drugs, heroin, like you could not believe it. So you go, mean, you go into plain clothes by that time, and, uh, yeah, and well, you were not, doing I was narcotics. Un, undercover, yeah. I was undercover narcotics. I mean, was it a shock to me? No, it wasn't a shock to me because I'm born and raised. I'm born and raised in Harlem. I'm born and raised with bookmakers. I'm born and raised with number people. I'm working with I'm working with cops, good good cops that wouldn't know a heroin bag if they fell over it. They didn't know they didn't know numbers. Mm. They didn't know basically prostitution and things like that. That did not make them bad cops. There's but no fault when of their you own. take when you take that and our leaders, our policy makers Dion who are running the police department, you understand? Who are basically running the police department, setting policy and stuff like that, and and say, don't ever, don't ever go near Columbia University to buy drugs. Are you out of your mind? Those are the kids of the people, those are the children of the people who, 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 Rundle, or the greatest yeah. generation that saved the world. Don't go near... Co- the baby that, boomers. That was it. That was the thinking. By the time we got to a drug called... Um, LSD. LSD. By the time we got to LSD, we were so far in over our heads. When I would see students, when I would see people dropping LSD into their eyes, I mean downtown didn't believe this yeah they didn't believe there was this kind of a drug problem through the 60s now that is the base plate of the total upheaval vietnam and vietnam get mixed in with or the civil rights movement gets mixed in with vietnam it it definitely does okay so now there's no two ways about it. The establishment and would work its way right up into Richard Nixon, the establishment, Dion, and the system is definitely, definitely against against the people that are against the Vietnam War, the people that are seeking seeking civil rights, you know, to bring us into, let's say, the 20th century. And so definitely when this group of people, and I'm not painting with a wide brush here, with this group of people, in order to get their point across, they have to fight, impact, make a dent, within the system or the establishment. And you know who stands for the, esti- the the system or the establishment, Dion? The guy on the front lines, you. The thin blue line. That's who represents it. I mean, is the opinion of the local police officer that he's against the, the Vietnam War? 
Absolutely not, for the one and simple reason, because he's there representing, you know, the people that are perpetrating this or the people that are stopping this. Believe me, that is not an outside view of the 60s. That is an inside view of the 60s. And remember, I personally get a letter from our government asking me to come back into the military while I am still a police officer, to come back into the military and I am witnessing, I am witnessing firsthand the killing of police officers. I mean, the, the p- police officers that the, the thin blue line is getting very, very thin. The Columbia riots, I mean, the, the riots rightfully, and I want to be careful with this, but the demonstrations, and that's what I want to call it, after you kill Martin Luther King, yeah. <laughs> hope left Hollywood, uh, left Harlem, and anger took its place. And so three days, Harlem was burning, and I'm there firsthand, and I can see now I'm getting courses I am getting courses, Dion, on how to save a city or destroy a city in case we lose a city. Well, at the time, you, you had these factions that were coming to power, like the Black Panthers, the, the Black Liberation Army, and I'll, t- uh, and I'll tell you, uh, Weather I'll, Underground in the 70s. And I'll tell you a group that's, t- that's, totally, that's totally left out of, and uh, believe me, the damage that this group caused, it was the Weathermen. Yeah. And guess where it came out of? Yeah. Columbia University yeah. was the first place that we yeah. saw them, them coming out of. It's the weathermen that do the Brinks job up in here and kill the sergeant and kill and kill and yeah, the guess state troopers. One, yeah, and, and and guess what? The weathermen, they're not black. Yeah, it's the weathermen that blow up the house. Uh, yeah, in the uh, village down in the village. Yeah, they blew themselves up trying okay. to uh, so this to make is, a bomb. This is what the '60s is about. Yeah, and the end result of the '60s is is that they start to execute cops. Yeah. They execute cops. And that was a real fear when you'd go uh, north of, say, 110th Street or something like that. Uh, A cop, you know, you could be killed. Absolutely. Yeah. I would wind up, I would wind up going to Atlanta. I would wind up going to St. Louis. I would wind up going to San Francisco, bringing some of these killers back. So this was just not a New York City, although they paid the price the worst with the killing of the cops. You know, within 11 months, they killed 13 cops. Wow. And they, they killed them up by setting them up. In fact, they were so very good at it that they started to kill them two at a time. And how would this happen? They would and just, it, call, they would just uh, say, yeah. yeah. How this would happen? There was a picture. There was a picture made, Dion, and this picture was called the Battle for Algiers. And the Battle of Algiers is based on is based on what happened, I believe, in the very early 50s. And what it was that France occupied Algiers. And Algiers, they were looking to do their best for independence. And so obviously, French soldiers were being killed, uh, you know, 
France could there. not really control it. So what France did was they brought in their best. And their best was paratroopers. Every country, every country, including the United States at that time, the best you have is paratroopers. Yeah. Today's special forces, the SEALs, yeah. they were all paratroopers. So France brings in paratroopers into Algiers. And what, what the French paratroopers do, what they see is that they can't control this either, but what they know that can control that is the police department. So the French paratroopers build up the police officers in Algiers. The station houses, they give them better equipment. They, they, they give the police officers better weapons, better means to uh, operate. They really bring up the police department. And the police department, obviously, they go after the lawbreakers, the people that... So that the French paratroopers and France is back over here. So if anything is going to happen, it's going to happen to the police officers. Well, with that said, and believe me, this is the short version. With that said, the Algerians set up cells. And these cells are 8, 10, 12 people. And they don't know each other. But they are given designated targets. And the targets are the police officers. And they kill police officers. They bomb the police officer's station house. And really what really does it, the end is, is that they go to the police officers and they say, we know where your family is. We know where your family is. You people should be charged with treason. You're just what you're doing to your own people. In mass, yeah. in mass, the police department quit. They went home. Eight months later, the French paratroopers pulled out of France and Algiers had their independence. Well, Gustav, I can't think of his last name, he makes a film. Yeah. And this film is called The Battle of Algiers. And what happens is, is that the scene that opens up, it's a black and white film, the scene that opens up is you see a French, a French, uh, you see an Algerian police officer. And he's out there and he, he, he nods at the people as he's walking and he's going down and he comes to a corner. He just comes to a corner and you see people doing their business or, or whatever it is. And you see a man in a civilian clothes walks up, puts a gun to the back of the, uh, of the Algerian police officer and pulls the trigger. And that's how the picture starts. Well... The Black Liberation Army. BLA, yeah. They played that film to death. Yeah. They played... In St. Louis, there was a copy of that film. In, in New York, it, it was a copy of that film. They just watched that. And the Black Liberation Army worked out of cells. They absolutely did. The Black Liberation Army's sole purpose was to kill cops. And that's what they did. So they, adapt, uh, they adapted exactly, that template. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Also, 
Also, I'm going out on a limb here, and I'll probably hear back. But the IRA looked at that film. Yeah, the Sinn Féin did a lot of that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't know too much about San Francisco. The, the, fam- the famous guys that were out there were the Torres brothers. Yeah. They, the Torres brothers were killers, out-and-out yeah. out killers. And the Torres brothers went out to San Francisco. And, of course, they hit a police station out there, killed the sergeant out there, bombed another police station out there. So where the, where the, Tor- the Torres brothers came from, New York. So do do we speculate that they saw the film and and they brought that exactly out there to San Francisco because New York and Atlanta and St. Louis were going before San Francisco started to go so the black liberation army viewed this film over and over and over again uh and they modeled themselves uh, exactly after that and what the film stresses is that if the police department collapses, if the police department collapses, I'll even now add, if the police department can't do their job, I mean, the public, the public is, is, is in trouble, is in very, very deep trouble. And I'll explain that. <clears throat> when the French went home and... Algerians uh, took over uh, took over for themselves it showed it showed that not an army you know basically maybe not even terrorists you know could free Algiers they could not but once they went after the police department that set Algiers free. Is this become a fear now d- well, domestically now, for us? Da- now, now, in the 70s, in New York City, the Black Liberation Army executed, executed 13 police officers. I mean, is there a difference of how you go into the ground? The difference is, is, how, is how you got there, is how you got there to go into the ground. And these police officers were executed. There are police officers that lose their life in the line of duty, in a store stick-up, in a bank stick-up, uh, you know, a, a domestic violence. But these were police officers that were actually set up and executed. Yes. Well, <clears throat> the powers that be that run the police department, uh, the, the powers that run the city of New York, the policy makers, the, the elected officials in there, when, when they don't see that, when they don't realize that, when they, when they stand in the way of, of, a, of a police officer, uh, you know, doing his job, Dion, or when they don't attend the funerals of these police officers. In other words, there is no uh, internal uh, uh, support for these police officers, which should be like an external uh, type uh, t- type of uh, t- type of event, you know. And it's not. And that's what happened in the 70s. So and the police the department, they kind of feel well. It um, wasn't so much. It wasn't so much the morale. Uh, of course, it, it was the morale, Dion. But you know what? And I'm going to use these words. 
I worked there. These police police officers said, "Fuck them." Yeah. And it wasn't fuck them to the people that were killing the police officers because you, the, the cops. They went out and got second guns. They rode with rifles in their car. They had shotguns in their car. And now what do that you have? That was their backup. And now what do you have? That can be scary. Yeah. That can be scary. A runaway police department? Absolutely. Now, again, it's all like parallels today where, where you okay. have the administration so now, kind of not backing the police and they're what stepping I back. See, what I see today, what I see today is, I thank God from the bottom of my heart, what I see today is, you know, not police officers by groups uh, being set up and executed. You remember, Dion, during those times, not only not only were cops shot, I mean, they actually fired a rocket across the East River to the precinct. They yeah. bombed. They bombed police headquarters. People f- it completely was forget a about war. this. Yeah, it was a war on the cop i went uh i was asked to uh go back into the uh military and uh that was 1968 and 69 and i went out to uh fort totten and um i went uh, back on jump status and uh my classes my classes I can't prove this, but my classes uh, were run by uh, people, uh, some in uh, civilian clothes. And uh, was it the CIA? I don't know. Um, can I say that on record? I, I think that it was, but I don't know. They didn't even tell you. And <clears throat> these classes, basically, I was a demolition expert. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, with all kinds of uh, explosives. Because you were in the and Korean War and, and you, you would serve. Exactly. Yeah. And, and now these, uh, these classes were updated. Uh, I still have the booklets. They were updated uh, of how to, uh, you know, uh, cripple a bridge. Uh, and the, the, bridge, the bridge wasn't in Beirut. And the bridge wasn't in, you know, the bridge was here. Yeah. And uh, maybe could be used as examples, uh, the types of explosives, uh, you know, the electrical system, how to take it down. Um, I got the feeling that these classes were in case, uh, you know, you lost the city. Which was, I guess, conceivable at that time. Anything going on. You know, it's a very funny thing, but uh, they came out with a movie uh, like that. And it was uh, Kurt Russell in uh, where the city of New York was uh, was lost. Oh, uh, Escape uh, from New York. Escape from New York. John Carpenter. And it was, it was taken over. It was taken over by the criminals. And they made it into a prison. Like, that's it. Yeah. It was taken over by the, by the criminals, you know. Which seems outlandish again today, but at that time, you well, know, maybe it could you know, have happened. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know, with all of the, uh, the, the really demonstrations and so-called riots and stuff like that. Well, here, 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 Dion, I know I'm jumping back and forth, but 
you take you if the if there was no police department at that time if the police department had collapsed had collapsed we became a police department unto ourselves i'm telling you we did yeah i'm telling you we did uh and it was a police department that actually went to war against the people that were at war uh, with the police department and caught in the middle and neglected was the public. Yeah. Was the people, was, you know, was the people of the city of New York. Uh, how so? Well, you can't commit uh, 2,000 homicides in the city of New York. 2,000 homicides. We had a mayor, Mayor Koch, who was a two-term mayor, and during his tenure uh, in office, 15,000 murders, uh, 15,000 murders were committed under Koch's watch. I mean, please don't tell me that we weren't running uh, neck and neck with Vietnam. Yeah. And this is the city of New York. Well, the parallel that I bring to bring up to today today and it's not gloom and doom and it's not a warning but i just can't help notice how the new york city police officer for the past three years his um his i don't want to use the word power but his 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 ability to be effective uh, out in the street. Remember, a police officer's job is not only to protect life and property, Dion, but it's also to prevent. And the, what, the way that you have virtually put the handcuffs, you know, soft or not, on police officers, I mean, it's very, very difficult well, for him now. to do to prevent, yeah, you know, to prevent. They're uh, afraid they're going to get recorded, they're going to lose their wanna, pension, they're going to get know, charged. You really don't want to be a reactionary, you know, a reactionary cop, a, re, a, a, a police. It's very easy for me to respond to the homicide after the homicide has been committed. Yeah. You know, so... I, I I I do see that today. I I I see that the that the more and more restraint is being uh, placed on uh, police officers, um, and 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 really sorry to say, uh, it's because we've become such a politically correct society, which I'm not finding fault with. But, I mean, you have to draw the line someplace. I mean, and I think that you should draw the line and allow the police officer, you know, to do his job. Um, you feel that it's, it's not politically correct to stop a person of uh, color, uh, you know, if basically the crime is being committed in an area of people of color, I mean, I think it is our job, it is our sworn duty, uh, you know, to protect, to protect those people in that community, you know, from the people that are perpetrating that crime course, yeah. in that area. So I know it's a fine line. 
am I am I here defending what is in some cases fairly obvious the loss of life of uh, a person of uh, a person of color I'm not defending that at all I'm not defending that at all and I hope in this era of cameras that you know that that's recorded that that is definitely definitely recorded and swift and proper justice you know is there uh however <clears throat> if you really prevent and i believe that's what's happening the police officer to perform his his sworn sworn duties i i i, I really think that you could see uh the collapse of uh, of law and order am i talking uh, across the country i'm I, i'm talking of new york city and what would that collapse result in i think that collapse would result in a rise in crime yeah a definite a rise in crime across the board yeah i mean do i have all do i have all of the facts do i have all uh, is it more of a feeling is it more uh, dion of drawing on on past history which i didn't read about i was there um i don't think i'm wrong this is what this is what i in my police career went from father knows best to the day the music died and to recognizing that father doesn't know shit <laughs> to 1969 of where i attended where i attended woodstock uh for two days when i i wasn't supposed to i was practically ordered not as to go as a civilian you went yeah I, no i was a police officer oh you went as a police okay i went and on a motorcycle and i went up there i did some skydiving and uh, i i went up there and when i looked at 1969 first time that i would learn that richie was left-handed uh no jimmy hendrix jim uh, jimmy hendrix rather it was left-handed <clears throat> at the end of 69 i knew i knew then i knew what was coming in the 70s i absolutely knew what was coming in the 70s. So I went my police career I went from you know father knows best you know lost two types of uh music within that decade and of course we lost Martin Luther King and the president of the president of the United States and we lost Bobby Kennedy you know I mean there was no more innocence in America yeah and uh we went into the 70s which in the city of new york would be as far as crime and killing would be the worst decade in the history of any city in the united states and that record still stands today for the loss of what killing of cops 2000 homicides a year we had a mayor that presided over uh, two terms during the 70s and he was the mayor while 15,000 homicides were committed we were running 
we were running against Vietnam like you have no idea as far as killings go. Crime, unbelievable the crime. Drugs, Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs in 1972. By 1975, we lost that. And in the midst of all of that that is going on, we have a police officer that's killed. Neither the mayor nor the, I, I don't have the time to go into, neither the mayor or the police or the police commissioner had the decency to even show up to the man's funeral. Mayor John Lindsay. Mayor John Lindsay yeah. and, and, and Murphy. And of course, Dion, <clears throat> I would write a book. Circle of Six. A, a book that I'm proud of, uh, uh, that I wrote for the one and simple reason there are two other books about it and numerous magazine articles about it and in those in those books and in those magazine articles they say the police department separated white and black they told the police officers to leave the mosque and let the prisoners go they said don't establish a crime scene they said uh you know it was our fault for going into the mosque i wasn't going to write a book and put down they i wrote a book and i named the people through public records through interviews I named the people the, the who circle actually of six. who did it yeah. and it turned out to be six people and I've called it the circle the circle of six now by, by 1968 1968 I was a I was a, a second grade detective one of the youngest and I was working at a Harlem and it was a uh, uh, called uh, you know, Harlem Homicide at the time. And the, the particular place that I worked was dubbed the Murder Factory. And um, <clears throat> I've said in the past, and I'll say it now, I made my living amongst the dead. <clears throat> That's what I worked on. Why do they call it the Murder Factory, the 2-8 the precinct? Uh, because uh, we would we would have... Uh, as the smallest precinct in the city of New York, we would ha we would have a hundred homicides a year. Uh, the smallest, the smallest precinct, we would have a hundred homicides a year. Let's say everybody knows Fort Apache. That would be the four one precinct in the uh, South the, Bronx. The, yeah, yeah, the two eight precinct would probably, without exaggeration, six or seven times an area we could fit into that and fit into them, and they were getting sixty homicides a year. Wow. You go to Bedford-Stuyvesant. Brooklyn. Bed Bedford-Stuyvesant, yeah. Brooklyn. A very active precinct, the 7-9 precinct. Uh, their motto was to live and die in Bed-Stuy. And they would, they, would get they would get 80, 85 homicides a year. These are the precincts that are contributing to the 2,000 homicides a year. We contributed the most. We got 100... Uh, 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 100... Uh, a hundred homicides. That's what that you know. That that's what we would get. So, how did how did you deal with that though? How how why do you think that why do you think that the the two eight was so um, that was such an epidemic in the drugs the drugs yeah I would say drugs yeah I mean it hit rock bottom by that yeah. Harlem hit complete yes you know yes yes let me tell you as the economy went as the economy went. Um, Harlem, if it was a ladder, Harlem wasn't even on the bottom rung. Yeah. They were not even on the bottom rung. Um, 
all of Harlem, basically all the buildings were white owned, white owned. That money left Harlem, never came, it, 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 it didn't come back into repairing, doing, etc. It did not. Yeah. All of 125th Street where the main businesses were, all the big businesses, was all white owned. And they didn't live there. And they didn't live there. So they pay their taxes in whatever city they live, to, I mean, Westchester, whatever. So I don't know how that worked, but I do know there were no black-owned businesses there. So none of the money came back into the neighborhoods right. and contributed to helping. Right. In 1959, in 1959, I mean, uh, Harlem was put on the map basically because uh, Fidel Castro came and he wouldn't stay at any of the other hotels he ran up and he stayed in Harlem. He stayed at the Hotel Teresa, uh, Fidel Castro. I worked that detail as a uniform cop when Fidel Castro came. Um, so it was always, always at, 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 you know, at the bottom of the a ladder. And I will tell you, during the Vietnam War, right, I will tell you, if you have a certain amount of percentage of uh, of uh, of a particular race, let's say in in the United States, and let's say their 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 percent is twelve percent, you know. Well, then in Vietnam, you would expect that you know twelve percent of that particular race. Let me tell yeah. you something: the black man, the black man, paid the price for this country, you know, uh, in Vietnam. While he's doing that, while he's paying that price over there, you know, and I'm going to say his people, hoses are being put on these people. Yeah. You know, dogs are being sigged on these people. And what are these people asking? They're just asking to vote. Yeah. They're just they're just asking to go to the to the to to to, to the good schools. Yeah. You know, that that's what they're asking for. So, yes, that's. That's Harlem that I grew up in, that I know, that I can speak firsthand of. And I, I know this. So I you know. saw the decay of the neighborhood as well then? You I, saw it go right down the tubes absolutely. and then... Abs- I absolutely did. Uh, in the end, in the end, the homeowners, the home, I don't want to call who they... The homeowners walked away and left those buildings. Left those buildings. So is there heat in those buildings? You know, I mean, yeah, who knows? Are, are there are there rats running in the garbage in the, in those buildings? Yes, yeah. there are. In those buildings, are there people with children? Uh, yes, there are, and that's, and, and that, and you. Am I saying? Am I saying? That the Black Liberation Army and and maybe some other groups belched up. Uh, because of what was going there, I would say to you that it was a big, big contributing, big, big contributing factor of what would what would finally culminate in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that. And remember, you are speaking to somebody, or I am speaking, not from the outside looking in. I'm I'm the guy that's in there. I'm the guy that's trying to, you know, I'm the guy that's trying to keep law and order. I'm the guy that represents 
whatever whatever it is that's going on in Washington. I mean, uh, what's going on in Washington? Uh, impeachment. Yeah. Uh, what's going on in Washington? A complete collapse. Crimes are being committed there. Yeah, Watergate. Everything. All that. All that is going on, and and the Vietnam War is raging on, and you know, believe me, the '60s was. If it feels good, drop out and do it. Yeah. But what is it? Leary, Professor. Yeah. Believe me. Be, uh, you know, believe me, that that was really, it was very, very difficult to be a cop at that time. It, yeah. it was very, very di- uh, difficult. And you can see, you can see by my sermons here or my preaching here, I'm telling you, if that thin blue line collapsed, you know, you know the best, the best of citizens, the best of citizens. They stop at a red light because if they go through the red light and there's a cop there, they're going to get a summons. Yeah. If there's no cops, you're going through the red light. You know, that may not be a very good example, but yeah. I'm telling you. So if, if, if the cops walked off or they were gone... I'll give you an example. be chaos. I'll give you an example that's going to be very, very controversial. What We were called in to Columbia University, and we were called in as police officers. By then, Columbia was out of hand. The buildings were taken over. There were small fires. There was an awful lot of damage being done to the building itself, whether it was the library, whether it was the mess hall. By the students? By the students. Yeah, protesting. Yeah, protesting. And by the way, those students were white. Yeah. And so they, that's what they were doing. Now, the police department, was. we were invited in there. We, we, we have no authority in there. We, finally, we were invited in there. Naturally, we're invited in there after it's out of, after it's out of control, yeah. after it's out of hand. So <clears throat> we go in there. I'm part of this. We go in there. And yes... It is, to a degree, a somewhat of a bloodbath. Yep, you know what I'm talking about? Sticks are used and stuff. Nobody's life was lost. Nobody's life was lost. Neither a police officer or a student. Okay? Kent State. Yeah. Kent State is out of control. Kent State is gone. I'm call the police. They called the National Guard. Call the National Guard. Yeah. Soldiers. Young, 18, 17, 18, 19 What are they trained to do? Yeah. What did they do? Yeah, they fired. Yeah. How many did they kill? Yeah, they killed college students. Yeah. Now, it's so easy to Monday morning quarterback and find fault or say something along the lines like this. You know, I will hear blowback from this. Who the hell are you? What do you think you are? You you don't know... uh, I'll probably hear that, but I'll also say that I could almost guarantee that if you had the police or even the state troopers in there, none of that would happen. I do not believe, I do not believe, maybe in the chaos or whatever it is, but I do not believe that the police department would walk in to 
no matter how unstable the situation was. And, I mean, was there plenty of fire back where the National Guard, where the soldiers were being wounded and shot at and snipered and stuff like that? I don't know. I yeah. don't know that. But I could almost guarantee you that if the police department went in there... It wouldn't happen. Okay. There's the difference between the police department and the military. You know, when the police department is enforcing the rules, the people of the city of New York, they would absolutely, you know, yeah, civilian complaint review board, this is what we're going to do, yada, 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 yada. You put the military, you put the military in there, and not because of terrorism now, but you put the military in there, let's say, in the 60s and stuff like that, you know what you're, you know what you're having? Yeah. You're, you're having Algiers. Yeah. You know what you're having? You're having a, 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 under siege, is if you want to call it. Uh, you're having a city that's run by, by the military that's doing that. This is the United States. Yeah. You, you, you know, you, you might do that in Russia. You might. Yeah. So, so you can see the point that I am trying to drive home here and maybe I'm going the long way around about this and do I say that we need the military in the city you know I'm talking about today because of terrorism and stuff along the lines like that well I could make a case I could make a case as to what was happening in the 70s with the execution of the police officers. Actually, you know, they bombed police headquarters. Yeah. They fired a rocket over the East River. I mean, is that not acts of terrorism? Yeah, of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's people. People don't even remember that in the seventies. All the, how nope. how close to the brink you were with uh, exactly with uh, the, exactly. the city. The city exactly. went bankrupt and exactly. wouldn't get bailed out. And you and you know and you know how the you, and you know how the uniformed police officer is 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 um, um, not recognized, but uh, uh, oh, a oh, good job and stuff like that. You know how he. You know you know what they did. No. In nineteen in nineteen seventy five, they laid off three thousand five hundred of them. Wow! They laid them off. Yeah. In the midst of this, and you know why? Why? Because they didn't have the well, because they didn't have no a budget. Yeah, no mudgy. The city was yeah. going broke. Yeah, they weren't the paying the garbage men. They weren't doing the, anything. The, the garbage men worked for two weeks, and then without pay, and then went home. Yeah. So you have all this garbage, and you it's have literally. That. I was there. So how do you cope then? How do you? How do you? How, what do you do at the time? You know, what do you do when you don't have the upper? The, the upper echelons helping you. We, we we went and did the job, and it was it, it it was a scary situation in that in that in that we didn't really have we didn't really have a leader. We really didn't we really didn't have a, you know in in fact in fact in fact our. One of our biggest objectives was, uh, you know, was not to listen, not to listen to one PP. This is how we're going to do it. Uniformed police officers came to work with dungarees on and a police shirt. And I would say at least one, if not two extra weapons. The guys that... Non-police non issue. Yeah. The yeah. guys that rode in radio cars carry shotguns. Yeah. The guys, they, they, they carry shotguns. I was a New York City uh, detective, and I, I carried a shotgun. Yeah. I, 
Mine was police department issued. Yes, I did alter it. I sorted it down. I did. But yes, that yeah. was, you know, th that's what I did. That was during those times. And did I care that somebody was putting a needle in their arm? And did I care that the heroin was coming in there? No. What, what I was doing was I was hunting, and they don't like that word, I was hunting the people who were hunting us, the people who were killing us. I, along with many, many other good, dedicated detectives, we were at war with the Black Liberation Army. Yeah. The police department, the uniformed police department to a degree, was at war with inspectors, police commissioners, captains, and whatever else, whatever else they, they were doing. I mean, did somebody call and say, I, 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 I need help, there's an assault happening to me, or somebody's trying to get in my apartment and stuff like that? Did the police officers go and do that? Yeah. How they went and did it? They went, they went with another radio car backing them up, armed to the goddamn teeth. Just to make sure it Arm wasn't a, uh, a ploy. That's the way that they were doing the job. Now, do you see parallels today to that now? Do you see like, a, you know, full circle, I guess, what is that, almost 40 years later? No. 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 No, I, I, I don't see that. Where, and I hope this comes out right, where, and I don't want to call anybody an enemy, but where I call, I don't know what the word is I'm going to use, but the enemy, the enemy is not the people in the street. Yeah. The, that is the enemy is, is the people who are setting policy that says, I have to, if I'm going to stop you, I have to stop you and basically say, <clears throat> my name is Randy Jurgensen. I'm a police officer. My shield number is this. My tax registry number is this. And Like you're uh, reading something I'm, off a card. It is. Yeah. The, the cards are coming next yeah. week. Word for word, I'm giving you what those cards are. Word for word, what those cards are. And that's are. for complete documentation so that if you stop somebody, that's uh, it. you and have now, to have a... And now, any variation from that, and here comes my exaggeration, any variation from that, and the cop is in trouble. Yeah. Internally in trouble. Uh, any variation from that uh, where it gets out of hand and there are blows thrown or something like that, eventually there's a lawsuit to follow. The cop, the cop of today cannot, cannot perform his job without... A, getting into trouble. B, B, saying, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yeah, losing your badge, losing your pension. Is this... Maybe going to jail. It, it, I'm telling you. So that becomes, it sounds like that almost becomes uh, reactive instead of proactive, which so, is very dangerous. So now, so now, when you, when, when you ask me, 
is 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 today the 70s well obviously it it it's not because you know you're never going to match those numbers if that's what we're thinking about doing yeah i we're not going we're not going to match please god i know we're not going to match you know 13 uh, 47 police officers were shot during that period 13 of them would die you know we're never going to match we're, we're not going to match those numbers it it won't get there uh we're not going to match we're not going to match 2000 homicides uh uh uh, a year. So when you start looking at those numbers there, um, please God, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to kill uh, any 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 leaders uh, any leaders that have common sense yeah. of what they're asking for. No, we're not going to be killing. Uh, you know, we're, 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 please God, we're not going to kill them again. So no. Is the 70s going to is the 70s going to come forward to the uh, uh, you know to uh, you know to, to the forefront ever yeah, now no I don't think they are but do I think do I think that we're going to have uh, a whole brand new set of uh, a whole new brand of set 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 of problems as far as being a police officer and doing the job that you swore that you were going to do, uh, I really think that there's going to be, I really think that there's going to be problems there. Yeah. Look, the police force, the police force, in my opinion, is not a civilian police force. And I think, I think, in my opinion, that's what you're trying. That's what you're trying to do. That's what you're really going uh, going to try trying to do. And what I think throughout the United States, throughout the United States, is I think that there is a race problem, a race problem, when it comes to the police and black people and black people are there are there instances serious serious instances where lives are lost where where lives lives are lost that should have not been lost um absolutely yeah absolutely should this be should this be addressed should this be looked at should uh should should this be um absolutely yeah abs totally and completely absolutely so on those instances is this why there's a race problem between the uh between the police officers uh, throughout the country, and uh, yeah, uh, I I guess that it is. Do I have the cure for that? Do I have the answer for that? Uh, no, I don't. I don't have the answer. But I don't believe taking away what a police officer should do, absolutely should do, 
is the answer. Like stop and frisk or kind of uh, just being able to have the, uh, the wherewithal Look, to pursue an stop idea. And, stop and frisk. Stop and frisk. <clears throat> stop and frisk. There's no, you can't deny it. You, 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 you can't deny it. Stop and frisk worked. Stop and frisk. Did it get out of hand? Um, I don't. I, I. I. don't think that that is the. I don't think that that's the answer. Uh, was stop and frisk uh, enforced in Scarsdale? Was stop and frisk in, enforced in down on Park Avenue? And I'll always use Park Avenue. Uh, <clears throat> no. No. Stop and frisk was used. Honestly where it was supposed to be used. I mean, on Park Avenue or in Scarsdale, you know, innocent bystanders, uh, victims. uh, Nine-year-old kids doing their homework in in their room. No. Yeah. It it was... Stop and Frisk was used in the neighborhoods where it was. Okay, so those neighborhoods turn out to be minority neighborhoods. Okay. So now, what's wrong with stop and frisk? Well, in my opinion, and it's so easy to Monday morning quarterback and, and, and blame the people who had at least the wherewithal, and let's say the balls, yeah. to, put, to put this out there to begin with. It's so easy to, you know, to find fault with and criticize, but <clears throat> you can't take... You can't take a bunch of recruits fresh out of the academy, fresh out of the academy. And am I going to find fault with today's police officer? Is today's police officer a veteran? Is today's police officer, and that doesn't necessarily make you a bad police officer or a wrong police officer, is today's police officer basically have any military any military time? There's no draft. Yeah. So you're getting police officers, and I know I'm going to be criticized for this, but you're getting police officers that that are coming out of working in Wall Street. Different working, neighborhoods, yeah. Working in McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, working in uh, all legitimate, all good... W- working people. Yeah. You're getting good people. You can't take those people, make them police officers, and then send them into a neighborhood where stop and frisk is done, and at the end, at the end of their tour... I'm exaggerating to make a point. At the end of their eight hours out there, when they come in, a sergeant says to them, how many people did you stop? And, and, the, and the cop says, well, I, I, I didn't stop anybody. What? How many summonses did you, did you, did you give out? I'm exaggerating. I have no proof of this. <clears throat> uh, no. What? That's what they're sent there for. They're not sent there as observers. So... That's what was wrong with stop and frisk. 
That's what was wrong when you have somebody that doesn't have any salt under his belt. Now, when you take a cop that's working in a neighborhood like that, and he's there one or two years, let me tell you about that cop, and I don't care where he comes from or what his background is, that cop is going to tell you the good people and the bad people. Yes, he is. I'm telling you. It, it's there. That cop is going to know who to stop. And that cop is going to know how to stop. You know? Yeah. That co- I'm telling you, he knows how to do it. So in my opinion, once again, here I'm being so critical of stop and frisk, which drove crime not upward, downward. Yeah. You know? Do I call it a safe city? Because of stop and frisk and other methods, other methods, broken windows, New York City became one of the safest cities in the United States. Yeah, under Giuliani and with we, the broken windows we, policy. We didn't yeah. get there, and, and, and we didn't get there because the, the, the cops went up there and observed. Yeah. No. The cops went up there and did their job. Did they overdo it? Did they, did they step across the line? You know, more than most likely they did. More than most likely they did. How many times did they do that? I don't keep the records of that. But in the end, it turned out to be basically a safe city. Yeah. Night and day compared to where it was in the 70s when you were there. Absolutely. Yeah. It they really turned, did. They turned Times Square into Disneyland. Okay. So now, so now, <clears throat> now you get an administration that finds fault with that. You get an administration that literally runs on the back of the New York City Police Department. You get an administration that's pointing out, I will do away with stop and frisk. Uh, I, will, I, I, will, I, will do, I, I will just issue summons. I won't incarcerate. You get an administration that is, that is so anti of what is in place there. And of course, and of course, all of the people in those neighborhoods who are against stop and frisk, who are saying, how come it's just happening to us? Well, who do you think that they're going to go out and vote for? Yeah. And if you see who went out and vote for, are they wrong? Is the mayor wrong? That's not what Randy's sitting here saying. That's not what Randy's sitting here saying. What I'm saying is is that if you continue if you continue to take away the ability of the police officer to really do his job and what should enter into there is common sense if you t- if you take away the ability of the police officer to be afraid to do his job. I don't mean that a cop is going to be afraid when he sees somebody with a gun that's shooting uh, shooting up the street up there and you see 50 people, including the animals, all running away from that and this cop running towards that. No. Yeah. They're going to do that. They will continue to do that. But 
I truly believe that the cop is going to really think twice about getting involved in something that's, you know, that he doesn't have any backup on. And I don't mean the backup in the street. I mean the backup, you, you know, the backup that he really needs, you know, to do his job. That's what I, that's what I see as going to be, that's going to be the problem. Now, when somebody wants to take what I have said and kick it back into the 70s, I have to say no. And I gave you my reasons yeah. for why I, 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 I don't think that this is going to be in the 70s. Uh, and this, you go uh, fairly into detail in your book, Circle of Six, the true story of New York's most notorious cop killer and the cop who risked everything to catch him, which is yourself, came out two, 2007. And we highly recommend everyone reading it because you go into detail about the era and the whole case that you were a part of that really was the darkest day in, in probably New York City's history. Sure. Um, so uh, let's stop it right there, and we'll uh, thank you very much, and we'll come back and do part two with you, uh, getting in extensively to your movie career and all that kind of thing, and we can hit on all the different movies and, and tell some Good. stories. But I want to end. <clears throat> I want to end with this, Dion. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to uh, I, I went to a boat signing for Patrolman uh, Phil Cardello. Yes. I mean, it's 43 years, but they're getting around to naming a, a, a boat. And this is the, what the, this is what your book is, the, uh, the Circle of Six, right. which is highly recommended for everyone right. to read. Right. <clears throat> and I'm told to say that whenever I mention Circle of Six, uh, it's available at Barnes & Noble, and it's available on Amazon. Yeah, uh, correct. My publishing company is telling me. And there'll be a link in the cast for people to, to okay. check it out here. So... <clears throat> So while I was standing there, and I was standing with the guys that were there that day, those of us that had gone into the hall, In those 72. of us that were working with Phil when he was shot, yeah. you know. So, uh, and I was standing there, and I was standing with a sea, a, 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 a sea of cops that were wearing a shirt, and on the shirt it said, Remember Cardillo. And this is 43 years later. And I went back and remembered how that started and that became a movement almost uh yes we all know that that happened to uh what happened to phil cardillo you know yeah and on you know the apologies the accusations uh we we all know that on the day of the funeral, this day that I was standing there watching this name go on the boat, it was raining. Yeah. On the day that they put Phil Cardello into the ground, a day where the mayor and the police commissioner did not show up. Only time in New York City history. It was raining, Dion. Yeah. And after the ceremony and after the people left, <clears throat> after the people left, after the family was escorted, there was 11, possibly 12 of us that stayed to the casket. And two of them were the cops that had been hurt. Inside the mosque. And, of course, his partner. Yeah. And there was a man by the name of Bart Gorman, patrolman Bart Gorman, who was a PBA delegate, Dion. And he went to the coffin. And he reached over to the coffin. I don't know if he fully got there. 
and I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said. Phil, we will never forget you. Phil, we will never forget you. <clears throat> this doesn't end here. We will never forget you. Well, we went back to the precinct. The commander became Gary Cooper, took his shield off, and quit. That was how He quit right there. The next day, when the troops were turning out, Dion, and you stand before the desk, and you're given your orders what to look for, and, and the last thing is, take your post. That's what the sergeant or the lieutenants, take your post. 35 to 40 cops snapped together and said, remember Cardello. Wow. And it was born. Yeah. <clears throat> Within that week, a rubber stamp came out, and it said, every piece of paper that went out in red, it said, remember Cardello. It was stamped, remember Cardello. By the following week, a communique came from downtown, one police plaza, and it came on a teletype. And it said, to cease and desist that you're mutilating police department, uh, you know, you're by infringing. Putting that, yeah, by putting that, that motto. On. And they wanted this to be posted. And they wanted it posted in every precinct, this, this communique. The man took that communique and went to the back room where there was a bulletin board. And he posted that on the bulletin board. And on the bottom, it said, remember Cardello. Wow. And from there, then came... Motorcycle rides, yeah. then came people like Timmy Motto, then came sweatshirts that said, remember Cardillo. Bumper stickers, and, and it, it was and everywhere. That is, that's, the history of, uh, that's the history of how remember Cardillo came to be. And that's what I saw 43 years later, Dion, standing as surrounded by these guys wearing that shirt that said remember Cardello as they were putting the name to patrolman Phil Cardello on the boat and this is all in your book which is highly recommended that's not in my book but no but I mean this this yeah. whole story of, oh, of yes, Cardello yes, and how yes. you were a part of that yes and how you uh you basically brought the person to justice and and got some sort of um peace on that that issue but Thank you very much for staying down with us, and, and, and we'll Dion, come back for part and two. Dion, and Dion, late October, it yeah. is official. I was with the mayor uh, uh, when he signed. He gave me the pen, which I want to show to you. He gave me the pen where he signed the bill. The street is going to be named... Uh, Phil Cardello. Phil, uh, uh, Phil Cardello Way. Patrolman Phil Cardello Way. Outside of the academy, and that's going to be in late October. Please tune into part two of our interview with Randy Jurgensen, where he lays down for us how he was able to go from being an NYPD homicide detective to become an advisor, actor, writer, and producer in Hollywood and be in some of the greatest films of all time, like The Godfather or The French Connection, or some cult classics like Sorcerer, Cruising, God Told Me To, and Maniac. Check us out at Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, which is located at saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com. We can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Stitcher, and Player FM. We leave you with a big preview of Part 2, where Randy gives us an overview of his career in Hollywood and explains for him the difference between real R-E-A-L versus real R-E-E-L. So, to segue a little bit, you 
uh, I guess in a way almost stumbled into film as well. Because uh, in the early days, you had told me an experience very early on when you were still in uniform in your radio car days. You, uh, you, you had a little entry into film that way, didn't you? I did. They were doing, um, they were doing the, the uh, original, um, and I can't think of the name of the television show. Is it Naked City? Naked City. Yeah. Uh, they, were doing, uh, they were doing Naked City. And uh, it was a television show. Yeah, very and, good one, by the way. <laughs> and I went down, and uh, I I was in a radio car, and they were filming in there, and I was just fascinated. I I just I truly was fascinated, and um, I worked uh, I worked on the very far outside of a case that was made in the '60s, and at the time, it was called. The Patsy Fuker case. Yes. And out of the Patsy Fuker case uh, came a book uh, written by Robin Moore, who had written the Green Berets. Yeah. I was a Green Beret, but had written uh, uh, about uh, 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 that case. Which ended up turning into the John uh, Wayne it, film, that, that one. Well, the, the Green Berets Green turned Berets, into yeah. J- yeah, John Wayne. But Robin Moore's book... He, he titled it The French Connection yeah. and it was the Patsy Fuca case and of course the the book when he came to Narcotics to write about it it virtually turned into the Eddie Egan story yeah. <laughs> uh, and thank goodness because uh, I, I, I don't think that we would have had a French Connection if it wasn't for Eddie Egan you know Who getting was... a hold of Robin Moore and saying you know he was he was it he was so so Dion, uh, so you were, you, now comes the time. You came into you were plain clothes at this time. Uh, I, I I was undercover, and I worked uh, I, I worked for eight months, uh, f- uh, four months out of it in an apartment in the in Greenwich Village, uh, on what was known as the bag murders, when uh, homosexuals at that time were not only being killed but were being dissected. Yeah, and um, yeah. And they would later on, uh, Billy Freakin would later on make a movie about that called Cruising. Yeah. So when we were doing the, when they were doing the Patsy Fuca case, uh, which became the French Connection book, which became the French Connection movie, yes, I I worked uh, very very long and uh, hard on the making of the French Connection movie, and of course I have a part in it, but. What bit me, what bit me was the actual making of the French Connection. And if I can, uh, for a minute or two, when I was a homicide detective, when I was a homicide detective, and I showed up to the scene of a homicide, today, you know, you have the forensic unit. But when I showed up to the homicide, and of course I worked in Harlem, trust me, there were no telephones. There were no telephones then. So <clears throat> I was responsible for the scene of the homicide. And if you allow it, that scene will talk to you. And <clears throat> I had to get the, get the cops that were first there. I had to try to uh, secure the witnesses. All this was done. I had to find usually my partner I had to find a telephone and my partner had to go and call 
ballistics, forensics, fingerprints, uh, a search team if, if necessary. Um, all independent entities. All independent entities. And those, ent- the medical examiner's office. In an era without cell phones. Entities, all those entities, Dion, didn't talk to each other. They all talked to the detective that was in charge of this case. So you had to coordinate everything. I could everything. actually have a captain working for me if it was the scene of a homicide. That's the power or the authority. I was totally responsible for that. And guess what? If I didn't get a conviction, it was on me. Yeah. So I had that kind of responsibility. Well, Dion, when they were making the French Connection movie, and so thank goodness the producer, Phil D'Antoni, took me under his wing. Every decision that he made, and I don't mean the monetary ones, every decision that he made, I was there. It was him that made the deal for the closing. It was him that made the deal for, you know, getting the locations. I mean, I don't have to go on here. Yeah. There's so many entities in making uh, and making a film uh, that the producer is directly involved in. When the producer hires the wardrobe uh, person or makes that deal, you know, what I, you, you know what I'm saying? No, he's not there. What? Now he trusts that they're going to do their job. The same as when I got the fingerprint people there, I trusted the fingerprint people were going to do their job. So when it, during the French Connection, I saw this. So years later, when I got to do my own films as a producer, you know, Dion, it was, easy. It, was it was like I was solving, if you will, a homicide. And of course, when I got to court, uh, the, uh, when I got to court, Dion, and you know, I had uh, twelve people, uh, you know, that came in. They were the critics when they came in with the verdict, you know, of uh, of, of of guilty. You know, I, I I did my job, and of course, the the audience was the people sitting, definitely sitting in the courtroom. Well, you know, when I when I completed the picture, you know, and the picture. You know, it, it, it played well or it was accepted well. I mean, can you see the parallels yeah, here? Yeah. So, yes. <clears throat> so you'd done all that, and it's, it's, it's nothing to just segue yeah. over and, and then and, coordinate you know, a and film. Going, and and, and going, going into acting, you know, going into acting in some pretty big pictures. Yeah. I mean, Godfather, French Connection, cruising. Cops and Robin, Cruising. Going into acting there and, you know, having all those people standing there looking at you and ne- having never gone to acting school, had never done, done it before. And their only well, job is Dion, there to help you. Yeah. Well, Dion, let me tell you. <clears throat> I, I did go to acting school. When you're on that stand in that courtroom <laughs> and, you know, and that defense lawyer is coming at you tooth and nail trying to trip you up and there's nobody there to help you, maybe the DA will now and then say, I object to that question. But you're on your own there and, you know, you, I mean, that is real. Uh, R-E-A-L. 
when when I'm on the scene in the French Connection in the garage, and I'm uh, I'm there. If I make a mistake with the line, I mean they run up to me, powder my nose. The director comes up and says, "Don't worry, Randy, you're going to get it." The script girl comes up and says, "No, here's the line." The director says, "Say it a little lower." Nothing but total and complete help. I mean, you know. Yeah, and I'm being to paid, yeah. and I'm being paid quite well. Yeah. So it was very easy for me to, to turn to my acting career, which yeah. was a small one, an acting career, you know, because I had done it, well, in the courtroom. For how many years? Yeah, uh, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. Now, well, your first picture was The French Connection. You helped out, you, you helped be a, uh, a technical consultant in that. You got yourself a part in the movie as well, and then you became friends, well, lifelong friends now with William Freakin. Oh, sure. And then... And, uh, with the, and uh, Phil D'Antoni, uh, yeah. absolutely. I would go on to work in uh, three or four uh, pictures uh, with, uh, with Billy Freakin. Uh, the one that I will uh, uh, talk about now is The Sorcerer, because My it's going favorite. to be it's going to be re-released. Yeah, it's it, it's it's coming it's coming out. Uh, it's it's going to be released, and I I don't want to say I went halfway around the world uh, in the making of that movie, but I uh, I went to uh, Iraq uh, with Billy. Uh, I think we went to Israel and Iran, and uh, we we filmed there. And of course, we wound up in Santa Domingo. It Did you go the, to France as well with him for that? No, no, he didn't uh, do that. It wasn't part. in France. Yeah. Uh, uh, I went to France. Uh, I, I I went to France uh, later on after uh, cruising yeah. and uh, and Germany and uh, I was a ro- I was a rock star in to push Germany that film. after cruising. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, no, Santa Domingo. Santa Domingo uh, it, it, it was the toughest picture. It was the toughest picture that I ever uh, worked on because. With Billy Freakin, when you do a Billy Freakin movie, I'll give you an example. We did Brinks. We did Brinks in Boston. Yeah, with Peter Falk. uh, And and Billy found out uh, through research that the safe, or at least the safe doors that were, uh, uh, when they pulled off the job. In the action, in real life. In in the 40s. Those doors were in Minnesota. Don't ask me how they wound up in Minnesota. I went to Minnesota and brought those brought those doors back and Billy put those doors up to use it for the actual yeah there's a scene there's a scene in Brinks where there's a quarter of a million dollars you know quarter of a million dollars yeah I went to the bank it took three days for the bank to get the you know um, in those days ones fives (laughs) tens and twenties no no fifties you know yeah it took three days to get that money and I, I got that money out, and of course you see it in Brinks. Thro- that's Billy Freakin. He's a professional. Going to be yeah. real. So when we went to Santa Domingo, and we were going into the uh, into the jungle, it was not going to be a 20th century back lot. It was going to be the jungle. Yeah. And it was. He fought tooth and nail for that. He he almost had Steve McQueen signed on. Steve McQueen wanted to shoot it in the states, and he said no to that. And he actually went on location. He ended up getting Roy Scheider. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And. And the actors who wind up in The Sorcerer. Yeah. You know, of course, that's a remake. Yeah, uh, Wages of Fear. But the actors that wind up, they get into trouble in, let's say, in foreign lands. Yeah. You know? We went to film in those lands 
I didn't go to France, though, where they got into trouble yeah. and wound up in Santa Domingo. and The four going, central characters. Yep. Going to, you know, put out this fire, this oil fire, uh, you know. And get the nitro over across the, the, oh yeah, across the, the, the jungle. And using nitro and going through, through the jungle. So that was Billy Freakin. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a wonder that he didn't really use nitro on the trucks while we, yeah. were, while we were driving. You know, that's an exaggeration. But that's Billy. That's the way Billy Freakin uh, makes movies, yeah. uh, Dion. And he was just um, coming off of The Exorcist, so he was huge. He was number one. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, uh, coming, off of, coming off of The Exorcist, yes. And speaking of that, you know, <clears throat> The Exorcist obviously is a... It's a girl, Megan, I believe her name is uh, Megan. Well, in real life, uh, and I went with him down to, uh, where did we go? Outside of Virginia, outside of Washington there. And uh, that that really happened to, to, to a boy. Oh, the, that, the actual story. The actual on, yeah. story was a boy, yeah. and Billy spoke with... Uh, the Georgetown, George, maybe? Uh, Georgetown, yeah, yeah. you're exactly right, in Georgetown. And, of course, came back and... Uh, he, he did The Exorcist. Now, <clears throat> naming the picture, na- oh, but has that picture, the sorcerer, has that picture gone on? But naming that picture, the sorcerer, Billy had an audience from the, uh, from the Exorcist. You know, people thought with the name of that movie and not reading what it was about be the same they kind of thought a, that they were going to go and see heads turning around another horror a, genre picture exactly yeah they were, you know well it is an odd name and it turns out to be the, the name is on the truck one of the trucks is absolutely sorcerer. and uh absolutely yeah he says i guess he named it for the fickle luck of you know fate and that's certainly one of the big devices and themes in the movie of you know you can't you know, you can't challenge Martin, Sc- Martin Scorsese said to me personally, Martin Scorsese said to me, and this was after Billy Freakin's, all Billy Freakin's movies. Yeah. Martin Scorsese said to me, <clears throat> the best work, the best movie that Billy made was The Sorcerer. Right. I can't tell you how many people concur with that. I, yeah, and I think Freakin himself believes it's, it's his favorite movie. Um, and uh, Joe Spinell went down with you as well, didn't he? He was in that p- picture for a little bit. And he, you, uh, now how did you meet? The, speaking of Spinell, you were good friends with him. How did you meet him? Did you meet him on The Godfather or how? No, on 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 the fr- on the French Connection, uh, which Louis DiGiamo, the casting agent uh, of the seventies, truly uh, Godfather, French Connection, Seven Ups. Uh, <clears throat> so Louis which, DiGiamo, Seven Ups, you were a part of as well. Yes, Louis DiGiamo. Um, I'll tell you how that title came about. Louis DiGiamo uh, was casting uh, the the, seven, uh, the Godfather, the, the French Connection, oh. and Louis DiGiamo and Joe Spinell were the closest, closest of friends, and that's how I met. Uh, that's how I met Joe Spinell yeah. through uh, Louis DiGiamo, and I would I would use in all the pictures that I worked on, you know. Uh, I would use uh, Joe Spinell, maniac, maniac cop, um, cruising. He's in cruising. Yeah, I, I sorcerer, I, Godfather. He was in the Godfather. Yes. Uh, yes. Nighthawks, um, and he had a close relationship with Sylvester Stallone. Speaking of <clears throat> Nighthawks, so <clears throat> we're working Nighthawks. Yeah, I'm on the set, and I'm working Nighthawks, and of course it's Stallone, and 
Spinell was close with the. Uh, they were really good friends oh, at yes, the time. They friends. were in Rocky together, and they absolutely yeah. yeah. So the director comes to me, and he says, uh, "Randy, he says the, we have a scene here where, and it's, it's virtually the end of the movie, but they're filming it at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. You know how they they don't film movies in sequence, of course. So <clears throat> the director comes to me, and I was uh, given like a lot of dialogue." the cop's point of view yeah you had a part in the film as well yeah no I didn't no but at the time you thought you did okay yeah so a director comes to me and he says you know the the killer is now going to come and he's going to kill you know he's going to kill the woman and so forth and there's a woman cop in this movie and uh, Stallone wants to uh, play the uh, play the play the woman and he's got a beard and everything like that. And he says, does the police department, you know, do, do they do that? And I said, oh, sure, uh, they do. I said, but no, basically, no. Uh, have we had guys dressed as uh, women? Uh, I said, uh, really, no. We, you know, we use, uh, we use woman cops. And, and, and Plus he's got a and, beard. And believe it or not, I said, you know, we've actually used... Uh, uh, female civilians, you know, uh, blah, 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 actors, uh, so forth. But in real life. Yeah, it's like you know, almost a bait or So a he says, oh, okay. He says, okay. That's as far as the conversation went. Yeah. <clears throat> Louis DiGiamo comes to me and says, Stallone said that, I'm going to get this right. Uh, Stallone's, No. The director, the director came and said, um, okay, I got this right. The director was being let go. Louis tells me the director was being let go. And I said, he's being let go. And Louis said, yeah, he, the director went and said that Stallone can't play this part with a beard and so forth and so on. And I was just looking at Lee DeJamo. And I said, the director's being let go over that. And Louis said to me, and he said, yeah, he says, uh, I, I, I think that, that you're going to leave the picture, he says. And I said, I'm, I'm going to leave the picture? He said, yeah, he said, you know, I don't think you'll be fired, but I, I, I so I said, okay. Well, for giving your input. <laughs> director obviously went to Stallone and said that I said, that he can't do this or whatever. Yeah. And that's not really what I said, but... Yeah. Okay. And then that part bookends the film. At the beginning, he's undercover, and at the end, he's undercover in this. And what happens now, Dion, is that Joe Spinell comes to me, and, he, and you know how Joe Spinell is. He said, I'm going to do your part justice. He says, I got your part. I'm going to do he it. He played the captain I, in it. And that was it. No. I, I, I left the film, and... Joe Spinell uh, took my part. Do you know anything about the falling out between the two of them? Why they, uh, I well, mean, up until that Spinell and Stallone, how they were no, so close and then they no, ended up. No, I don't know why they fell. Yeah. So let me be all over the place here and just go to the seven ups for a moment. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when we were, uh, when, uh, when we were uh, in uh, homicide, uh, I worked on a level uh, of uh, not nickel and dime bags. Uh, we were working on the uh, distribution, the distributors and stuff like that. 
it's not I, the deal, not the street level dealers. Well, I, I worked, I worked the street level. I worked the street level, you know, to get to uh, Peter and jam up Peter really, really good. And Peter would give up Paul. You understand? Yeah. And so we that was working their way up to the chain. Now, when it really got high up in there, no, I didn't work on that. I was, I was a street. I, I was the street, but th it, that led to the higher ups. Once they got to the higher ups, which again, Sonny and Eddie and that whole crew in there, once they made those arrests, those people, those people got clean across the board, seven years and up. That and the so that's how the title of the movie came about, The Seven Ups. Please join us in two weeks for part two of the Sidecast featuring the interview with Randy Jurgensen as he goes into film in Hollywood and his career in cinema. See you soon.